Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. We're the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Sarah Ivory. Today, we ponder the future of men and women. Two years ago, reporter Hannah Rosen wrote a story for The Atlantic magazine called The End of Men. In it, she argued that the shift in the United States economy from traditionally male manufacturing-based jobs to traditionally female jobs in healthcare, human resources, education, and so on, was leaving men in the dust. As you can imagine, the article was the topic of many heated conversations at the water cooler and really everywhere. Now, Rosen expands on those ideas in a book also called The End of Men. In the book, she provides ample evidence of how these shifts in men and women's roles are playing out in corporate culture, at universities, in families, and on television. There's plenty to debate about in her book, but in particular, for our purposes, it seems worth considering to what extent these trends are reflected in American Jewish communal life. To that end, we've invited two guests to join us. Shifra Bronznik is founding president of Advancing Women Professionals in the Jewish Community. Bronznik is also a senior fellow at NYU's Wagner School of Public Service. We're also joined today by Andy Bachman. He is the senior rabbi of Congregation Beth Elohim and a frequent contributor to Box Tablet. And I think it's fair to say that Andy is somewhat obsessed with American politics and with social change. Andy Bachman, Schiffer and Bronznik, welcome to Box Tablet. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. I want to start out by asking both of you what part of Rosen's argument you found most compelling and perhaps most resonant to the point where it might change the way you think about your work or your family. And Shifra, I wonder if you want to begin. Well, what was really touching, actually, is the way Rosen captures men being caught in this turbulent change in the economy and their lack of ability to adapt to those changes sufficiently quickly, while women, in her argument, are flexible enough. She calls them plastic women as compared to cardboard men. They're flexible enough to find a new way, whether it means shifting into full-time work, identifying the fields that you have to enter because there are going to be jobs in those fields, and simultaneously taking care of the home front. And so the gap that she describes is very real, I think, particularly in the middle class and in the working class. And I was really moved by her one appreciation of the way women have adapted. Uh, If you look at what's happened uh, in developing countries, for example, they often find that women are the engine of economic growth because they'll do whatever they need to do to educate their children and to put food on the table. That's why they've been the beneficiary of microfinance loans, and that's why they've repaid those loans, I think, 95% rate, whereas men often – take the money and um, don't necessarily use it to profit the people around them. So I think that's a reality uh, that she's capturing and it resonates for me. Uh, But I also think that um, it evokes a kind of compassion about what it means when men have been free not to adapt because the world has adapted to them. Now they have to shift. What about you, Andy? What about me? <laughs> what about me? What? Have you shifted? No, Is I'm it over like... for me? Are you asking? <laughs> no, I, I wonder if there's a part of Hannah's argument that uh, is the most compelling for you. And what is that argument? Schiffer captured it really well with uh, the dichotomy between plastic women and cardboard men. Um, and so in that regard, the book is a really important snapshot of where we are in our society. What it 
doesn't really do is capture the deep structural economic policies and problems that actually helped create some of this, um, and that in many ways is at the core of what our political battles have been. It's interesting. I hadn't really thought of making the connection between micro-grants um, you know, and what women do with this 95% return on investment and what men do with it. Um, it reminds me a little bit about um, how economic policy is now driven in this country with people running away with massive profits and actually not investing them in the infrastructure of the country. And one imagines what our economy would look like if if uh, profits would have been less in people's pockets and more uh, deeply invested back in our nation. So, Andy, your beef with the argument, though, is that she ignores certain structural factors, especially as they pertain to the working class in this country. Schiffer, I wonder, do you have any particular um, uh, grievance is too strong a word, but any complaint about her argument and what is it? Well, I totally agree with Andy uh, about that issue because I was thinking that it was kind of stunning to me that this argument that somehow linked, quote, the end of men with the rise of women, uh, actually, that's not the link I'd make at all. I'd link the end of economic opportunity for working class and lower middle class men with all of the economic changes that have happened, whether it's moving from an industrial economy to a service economy, whether it's the impact of technology, whether it's the growing disdain in our country for unions and for workers and for providing them with benefits. I am so struck that there is nowhere a mention in this book by the mega billionaires, mostly men in this country, who have literally fueled um, an Armageddon for everybody in this country, men and women. Women have succeeded in adapting to that Armageddon because that's what women do because they're used to living in a world that wasn't constructed for their benefit and they're used to finding the ways to navigate in order to provide for themselves and their children. Men are more used to being able to walk in an environment that's been set up very nicely for them and then taking advantage of that. So in this Armageddon, mostly fueled not by the rise of women, but by the rise of an almost oligarchy in America, a tax system that doesn't properly take a share of taxes in order to create the structural reforms we need and the job retraining and all of those things that would make a difference right away. And so I think her setup, her bookends are wrong. It's not about the end of men and the rise of women. It's about the end of equality in America, the contempt that we have for the working class, and the fact that women have been able to survive that contempt and men of a certain class are really drowning. That's a very perceptive uh, appraisal. It didn't even occur to me to sort of see it in a more um, really Marxist light. I want to ask you, Schiffer, a question. Uh, in your work, you consult with Jewish women who are trying to become Jewish leaders of one sort or, or another. And if you find Rosen's argument convincing, uh, or for a person who does find her argument convincing, they might conclude that you, Schiffer, have to go into another line of work because we women are doing so well, we don't need your services anymore. So is that how you see it? I mean, if her argument is correct, does that mean you're out of a job? Well, actually, fortunately, um, the way we constructed advancing women professionals in the Jewish community, if you, if anybody wants to read our business plan, what we said is we're an intervention into the system. We actually believe we're going to achieve our goal. We actually have a date certain by which we plan to achieve our goal. So we have cultivated the talents of amazing women leaders. And what we're seeing in the Jewish world is a very bifurcated system. In the veteran organizations like the federations and that kind of alphabet soup of American Jewish Committee and Anti-Defamation 
Information League and the many organizations that get surveyed. Um, you see very few women at the top, though you see about 80% women working in those organizations. And that's because they're headed by people who are really determined to hang on to leadership for many years and don't create the environment in which either they move on or they create space for others. But in other sectors, whether it's the social justice sector, whether it's new spiritual communities, whether it's organizations that work on women in breast cancer or LGBT, half the organizations that Slingshot surveys as the 50 most effective in Jewish life are headed by women. And if you look at some of our major publications such as Tablet or The Forward or Shema or Moment Magazine, they're all headed by women now. If you look at foundations, when people step down from big foundation jobs like happened recently at the Wexner Foundation, a woman, Rabbi Elka Abramson, was given the post. That wouldn't have happened before. So we see this shift and what I see is that the organizations that are vital and alive and determined to have an impact are very open to women's leadership. And the organizations that are struggling in other ways to reinvent themselves so that they'll be meaningful for the 21st century also have a lack of women in leadership. So one, we look forward to going out of business and we have a plan to go (laughs) out of business. And two, uh, we are determined to put into place the infrastructure that Roseanne does not really notice, which is paid parental leave, flexible work arrangements, closing the gender gap in pay. All of those things we feel are essential, and we're working on that in the Jewish not-for-profit sector, and we're doing that with male allies like Andy. By the way, The Atlantic, if you ever survey how many women write for The Atlantic, the women who usually write for The Atlantic, like Hannah Rosen and Anna Marie Marie Slaughter, who recently wrote an article about having it all, Mm -hmm. come come clothed in these sensationalist titles like The End of Men or pictures of a toddler in a briefcase and why women can't have it all. And I don't think it's an accident that these organizations or publications that mainly feature men are very happy to feature women who fuel certain kinds of fears about the changes that feminism could bring. Sounds like a nefarious plot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that some of these organizations could do with looking at themselves a little more reflectively in the kinds of ways in which they sensationalize some nuanced arguments. So then, Andy, in the non-Orthodox world, uh, I mean, Congregation Bethlehem is reformed, but you have reached beyond your pulpit. Um, what, uh, What kind of changes are you seeing for women professionally uh, in in the Jewish world that is non-orthodox and how are men reacting? The two biggest changes, you know, for men and women in the pulpit world clearly date back to the reform movement's decision to ordain Sally Priest and a rabbi and opening up the rabbinate to women rabbis. JTS eventually follows and you now have uh, the beginning of a movement to ordain women as rabbis in the open orthodox world. The greatest sea change is that classes are easily, rabbinic classes are easily majority women. And now for the last good 20 years or so, all rabbinic classes basically are majority women. We don't really know what the long-term implications of that are. Um, Some of the structural problems that Shifra obviously works on on a daily basis, 
um, adequate maternity leave? What kind of a work environment is it? Is it an open and safe work environment? Do women who work for senior male rabbis get treated in the way they ought to get treated? Is there actually a ladder of success for uh, women rabbis to take over large pulpits? I imagine that a survey of the largest pulpits in America would look pretty much like a survey of federation lists with mostly men in those power positions, not necessarily giving them up to women. Um, and so there are still long-term structural um, matters to address. There's no question that women uh, exude a different relationship to Torah and to spirituality. And so the quality of spiritual life is changing as a result of women being in greater leadership positions. And I don't think there actually are any major earth-shattering studies that have come out yet about what that actually means. It's very amorphous and difficult to say, but you could certainly say that a sea change has happened in spiritual leaderships uh, across the spectrum. The flip side is what traditionally becomes the role of men in these situations. You know, what's the role of men in synagogue life? What's the role of male spirituality, if you will, which is a concept that actually makes the... uh, makes me break out in goosebumps <laughs> uh, to think about trying to articulate a male spirituality without reciting Robert Bly or something like that. But nevertheless, <laughs> um, there is this bifurcation uh, that is very early in being articulated. I don't think it's being articulated in any kind of uh, profoundly moving way right now um, or compelling way, but it certainly is something to be addressed moving forward. What do you mean by men's – I mean you say it gives you goosebumps to sort of even – mention male spirituality, but what does – I don't even know really what that means, male spirituality. You know, it, it's sort of this presumption that men somehow need to be liberated into their new spirituality now that women have moved into leadership positions. So it's kind of sets up a fake oppositional argument. You know, you can make the case that for easily for the last 3,500 years – one of the great essences of Torah Judaism has been a quote-unquote male spirituality, if you would decide to call it that. Um, the idea that you then have to articulate, it, now that women are moving into an equal role, you suddenly have to articulate a male spirituality, which just strikes me as uh, almost overly insecure. But so you have now men's Haggadahs and a men's Torah commentary and like a need to create a new special interest group as if men are the new oppressed class. But what is it, what is it that people are reacting against they just don't want to hear so many sopranos you know singing yeah or they're or they're uncomfortable sharing <laughs> leadership they're uh-huh. uncomfortable having their perspective of torah or revelation opened up i think andy the best example of that was when they did put out the women's torah commentary which was a kind of a painfully needed supplement to thousands of years of a narrative that has been given to us primarily in the male voice. And immediately the reaction was, we need a, a male Torah sup, you know, a male Torah commentary. And I felt like, isn't that the Torah? <laughs> like, what's the supplement that's required here? So I think you're speaking really more about the emotional roots of this desire than kind of the content of what's actually going on and how easy it is to sh- ignore the fact that there are power structures and some of them have benefited men more than they've benefited women. And in moving these power structures, it's unleashed a whole set of anxieties. One of the reasons I think it's been so slow to advance women into full leadership in Jewish life is that men are convinced that if too many women are leaders in Jewish life, the men will leave in droves and that that will create 
more assimilation, more dispersion of the Jewish community so that what they're actually afraid of is that the full force of women in Jewish life will lead to the end of Jewish life. Mm. So I hear it. I mean, it's, it's literally a threat that's made and it's an argument and an articulation that's made. Can you give me that? Women are taking over leadership positions in in the reform movement. And if we don't create venues for men to be involved, men are gonna leave Judaism altogether. Literally. Uh, and then it gets connected to a whole series of other, you know, claims. It somehow gets linked to uh, Jewish men marrying Gentile women or Jewish men not wanting to be involved in any aspect of religion. I'm sure someone's going to make the claim that because women are involved in Jewish life, Jewish men don't support Israel. Uh, you know, who knows what outlandish things people are going to come up with. But again, it, it's a reaction to an inability to recognize that if you truly believe in equality, then you embrace the complexity of what it means to live a life of equality. I want to ask you, uh, earlier this month, uh, in the New York Times Magazine, they ran an excerpt from The End of Men. And the excerpt that they ran focused on an Alabama community that lost an enormous number of jobs, uh, manufacturing jobs, that is. Um, And the men didn't adapt. You know, they are sort of uh, complaining about having no job and drinking beer and so forth. Now, one of the obstacles to men's readjustment, it seemed like in this case, was the – Christian, evangelical Christian understanding of men and women's role in the family so that the man is the provider traditionally, he's the protector, and the woman, her domain is the home. That made me wonder about gender divisions within Jewish communities, particularly in the Orthodox and uh, modern Orthodox and also more than modern Orthodox communities. And I wonder about how current economic trends and need to go out and make a living is uh, affecting those traditional gender roles. When I read Hannah Rosen's piece in the Times Magazine, uh, the excerpt from the book, I was struck immediately by how the evangelical male has this sense that he has to be this magnanimous provider, manly provider for his family. I do not find that in the main anywhere in the Jewish community. And you could argue, though it's stereotypical, of course, classic, you know, Asius Chayil from Proverbs, the woman's role in in the spiritual Judaism that most of us know is a central, valorized, elevated role. And so there isn't that level of insecurity about not being the breadwinner per se. I think that across the board in a lot of Jewish communities, there's there's a greater comfort with a shared economic sense of responsibility. It would have been interesting to see her actually do, and I'm sure, Schiffer, you probably have some of these numbers. If you look across the board, um, at different ethnic groups and different religious groups in America, how do Jews come out uh, in terms of sharing economic responsibility and comfort roles with levels of equality? Even think of the fact that, you know, we have a tradition of men studying and women supporting those men. So it's 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 a different framework. Altogether, right. Now, you're both, you both have kids. Shifra, you've got a daughter who's 18 and a son who's 15. And Andy, you've got three daughters. They're nine. Uh, they range from nine to 15 years old. And I wonder if this book left you with any worries or ex- particular excitement about their futures, any particular feeling about being a parent to a boy or to a girl in the 21st century. So 
I don't think this book particularly influenced my feelings about my children, but I think my children influence my feelings about the world. And I am incredibly optimistic about this generation. I think they have fully come into the world ready to take up whatever is in front of them. I remember um, that a few years ago there was a terrible article about all the rape going on in the Congo by UN peacekeepers. And I was sitting at the table reading this article and just crying and wondering, what am I doing with my life if I'm not doing something about this? And my eighth grade daughter came out of the room. She was in eighth grade at the time, sits down, reads the article. And by the end of the next day, she and her friend had already asked me for the address of the Ponzi Hospital in the in the Congo because they wanted to write to them to explain that help was on the way because these two girls spent the next year and a half raising $3,000 to send to the Ponzi Hospital in the Congo. It never occurred to them that if something bad was happening and they felt strongly enough about it, they couldn't do it anything about it. They felt like they could. So all I could say is I feel for both my boy and my girl that I'm blessed to live with people who feel a sense of engagement with the world and a complete ability to take on whatever they see that has to be changed. Yeah, I I echo that completely. We're incredibly fortunate. It's one of the rare times when I'll publicly be so happy that I'm raising children in New York City. what they're exposed to, who they're friends with, who they get to know, feed them with this confidence that anything is possible. They believe it, and I know it to be true, and that is really an amazing thing about large metropolitan areas where people live on top of each other and you see people from all walks of life. It really empowers you. I felt the pain of many of the lower middle class or working class people who literally had to pick themselves up out of their community, move themselves away from their family structures, which they cherish, which are very important sources of of energy and love and life for them in order to actually make themselves into the people that they want to be. I think it's something we don't fully appreciate outside of places like New York, the incredible struggles that people have to go to just to try to get uh, equal footing. And I just also want to say, I think one of the things that adds to that is in our Jewish community, I think one of the great parts of the technology of Judaism is our children, Andy's children and my children have grown up in a world in which adults are part of their landscape, not Mm -hmm. just the father or the mother, but They have grown up sitting around a table on Friday night for Shabbos dinner in which they are considered to be part of the conversation about what kind of world we want to build and what kind of community we want to have. So try doing that 52 weeks of the year. (laughs) It's really something that's going to have a lasting impact. Andy Bachman, Schiffer, Bronzenick, thank you both for joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks, Sarah, for inviting us into a great conversation and for giving me an excuse to see my friend Andy Bachman. (laughs) (laughs) Schiffer Bronzenick is the founding president of Advancing Women Professionals and the Jewish Community. Andy Bachman is senior rabbi of Congregation Beth Elohim in Park Slope, Brooklyn. We'd love to know if you want to weigh in on this conversation. What do you think about the future lives of women and men in America and in your community? Send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com or comment on our website. It's also tabletmag.com, www, that is. Go for it. Don't be shy. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. We thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week. And as Rosh Hashanah is upon us, we wish you a Chag Sameach, Shana Tova, Metukah.